Shabbat Shalom. Romans chapter 6, let's delve right in. Dead to sin, alive to Yahuwah. That is the chapter, chapter 6. My goodness, I love this. Um, especially when we get into the 14th verse, that's something that um, we've all struggled and battled with over the decades, I'm sure. So many different uh, interpretations on that. And I'm excited to go in for that narrow road today. Let's embark on the first verse in chapter 6. What then shall we say? This is how Paul opens up this address. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let it not be. We who died to sin, how shall we still live in it? And you can see how theologians have come up with the title, Dead to Sin, Alive to Yahweh. But what does that really mean? Because this was such a powerful chapter in my early walk, and I think for many of us, because it truly tells us how to engage in the battle. And the reality is that we are in a battle. And if you don't know you're in a battle and you're in a battle, you will be defeated. So you've got to be engaged. You cannot be neutral. You have to be an active participant. And you have to be a tactician. Because sin is out to what? Destroy you. It truly is. Especially when the world is fueled and supports everything sinful. Everything sinful. The world's economy is built upon sin. But remember what we've already listened to and what was already written in this letter. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 preceded this. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? So Paul's question here in chapter 6 verse 1 is prompted by what he'd already written earlier in the letter. Because now you're going to get some perverts that are going to say, well, hang on a minute. If there's sin and his grace abounds, then surely if we're sinning, we're going to have an abundance of grace. Let's keep on sinning so grace may abound. That's a perverted mind and a perverted theology. So this was the question that could arise in some twisted, sick minds, that if Yahweh's chen in the Hebrew or charis in the Greek, his grace is present at its zenith, its, its peak right now, isn't it? In Yahusha, grace is at its very zenith it's very senith, then maybe we can live in some degree or another in sin. That's insanity. But this is maybe what the warped mind would say. That's a warped argument. But Paul has to be aware that there could be some twisted thinking amongst the people that are listening. So grace, the Hebrew word for grace is chen, chen, and the Hebrew is charis, and the Hebrew related words to this chen and charis are Hebrew words gedulah, halak, hesed, which is like loving kindness, 
tov, his good, his goodness. Racham, which comes from womb, or rachamin, mercy. And ratzon, his ratzon. These are all interrelated words that mean grace. And in this section of the letter, remembering it's a letter, Paul communicates that that kind of twisted thinking it is anathema to the gospel that he's presenting. It's an anathema to the gospel that he's presenting. That anyone, that anyone would have such a twisted view on things that they'd want to continue in sin's sphere of influence, it's absolutely reprehensible to Paul. And it should be reprehensible to us, should it not? It certainly should. Let's look at justification and how I termed it a few weeks back, forensic righteousness. You know, the righteousness that only comes by Yahusha. It's forensically righteous, meaning you can closely inspect it forensically because your life and my life is nothing but a sinful crime scene, is it not? And the only way that we can get healed from the crimes that we have committed is by the forensic righteousness of Yahushua. There's nothing that you can mop up that is going to cover the crimes in your life. There's nothing that you can mop up with your so-called goodness, holiness, and your own personal righteousness that is going to be good enough for the kind of crime scene that you and I have walked in. So that's why I like to call it Yahushua is the only one that brings forth the forensic righteousness that then can take us from this world into the next world, right? So forensic righteousness is that initial cleansing. It's that initial cleansing of one's sin and guilt before the Creator. We can all agree on that, and it only comes by Yahushua's outstretched arms. But forensic righteousness is supposed to do something. Once you obtain that forensic righteousness, it's supposed to ignite the boiler of sanctification in you. And then that boiler of sanctification is something that you personally and I personally have to stoke for the rest of our lives. So the forensic righteousness that is only obtained by Yahushua is supposed to then ignite a boiler of sanctification in our lives. And then our responsibility is to continually stoke the boiler of sanctification so that it never, ever goes out. And that's what our life is. It's a boiler of sanctification, right? Watch out. It's a boiler of sanctification. It reached out and tried to grab me in the... Seriously, that's how I look at our life, my life. You've got to stoke it. All that continual fire better on the altar. It can never go out, can it? It can never go out. So we have to understand what it is that is happening as Paul is explaining the process of sanctification in our lives. Because really, Forensic righteousness, if it then ignites sanctification, sanctification is a continual and forever ending process in which what? Sin is to be burned up and removed 
within our lives. Not facilitated. Certainly not facilitated. And that's what Paul's saying. But there would be some that would say, well, no, it should be... No, of course not. That's ludicrous. Stoke the boiler of sanctification and burn up sin. Simple as that. It's a point that's clear, really, if we spend time understanding the framework of grace. Chen, chesed, charis. Because... We know that Noah found what? Grace in the sight of Yahuwah. But it was Yahuwah who actually later with Abraham ratified grace into a covenant, didn't he? He brought that grace into a covenant, which was then 430 years later, blood ratified into the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 19.4. Those covenants of promise that Paul spoke about to the Ephesians, are they intricately connected with grace? They certainly are. And we're going to make those connections today. They're connected with Noah, connected with Abraham, It's all about grace. And when you really understand the Torah covenant basis, fechen, ratzon, rachamin, charis, grace, you'll understand that grace cannot, shall not, it certainly cannot be divorced from its inception point. And that is, I think, what happens when we're in our traditional Christian understanding, we don't understand the inception points. We don't understand the inception points of biblical words because we are all taught to start in the book of John. But if we understand that grace didn't begin with John, it began back with Noah, and what was that inception point that then went into Abraham and then is wrapped up in the covenants of promise, when we understand grace in that framework, then we can really live a boiler-plated life of sanctification. But if we don't understand grace then maybe we're going to be stoking our fire with the wrong type of manure. And that's just stinking, and we won't say that, but you know what I'm saying, right? So let's look at that. Grace cannot be divorced from its inception point, which of course is national covenant blessing, which is what Paul is speaking about here. Romans 4, verse 16, sums it up perfectly. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure. Listen. Listen how he's framing grace. It's not abstract. Look at the surrounding context of the vocabulary in Romans 4, 16. Grace. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure. What promise? The promise made to Abraham might be sure to all of his seed, not just to the Jews, 
those Jews that were coming out of the book of the law. No, but to those in the nations, those who have the faith of Abraham, those people that have crossed over from paganism, from one soil into a better soil, producing a bountiful crop of the feasts and festivals of Yahweh. Romans 4.16, you never heard that in seminary explained quite that way, did you? It's all about this book of the covenant faith that we've been delving into. It truly is the definition of grace, but it's not devoid or divorced from its inception point in the covenant. Grace is the promises that was given to Abraham. And it's been given to all of us. Not just to the Jews that are coming out from under the schoolmaster, the book of the law, but also to those in the nations, those that have crossed over. And now we go into Romans chapter 6 and the third verse. Are you ignorant? That we, as many as were baptized or mikvahed into Messiah Yahushua, to his death were mikvahed. Were we buried together then with him through the mikvah, the baptism to death? That even as Messiah was raised up out of the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we may walk in the newness of life. You see, unlike the rest of humanity, we live, we live upon a totally different plane. And I'm finding that more and more apparent the older that I get. I live on a totally different plane than the most of humanity. And I know some of you are like, yes, I know you do. <laughs> We've noticed that about you. We, you live on a different plane than most believers. No, we live on a different plane from humanity. We truly do. We live, and like I've said before, we live amidst this eschatological tension. And I really, really feel that. We live amidst this eschatological tension. And the unbeliever doesn't understand that, but that is our very life. We live between this eschatological tension. We've already died, right? We've already died to sin. We've already been raised in Messiah. But here we still are in our bodies, right? But I'm already dead to sin. I'm a new creation. I'm raised up in Messiah. Yet, in another sense... My dying and being raised up in Messiah is my everyday present obligation, isn't it? Amen. And that's the struggle. Every day I've got to die. Every, I mean, I, it's hard work being a believer. I mean, I look around at the unbelievers and they're just like, a, they pick up a matchbox and they just, you know, it's like just on, that's tough having a good, you know, fart, let it fast, let it burn hot. and it, it looks like it's great. You know, that's how I lived in my late teens and early 20s. Not just one match. Oh, we used to do the genie where you just like the whole matchbox, right? That was my life. But um, like I say to many people when they ask me, would you like to do this? Would you like to do that? I say, you know, I can't. I've burnt all my chips. 
I don't have the uh, luxuries that many of you have because I used up all my chips. I can't do those things anymore. You see, it's not enticing anymore. Every day we have to live amidst this eschatological tension that the unbeliever does not understand whatsoever. Whatsoever. They're living on a totally different plane. And we cannot relate. Not really. Not really. Not if we're stoking the boiler of sanctification. And you have to. Because otherwise you'll become cold. Or worse, lukewarm. So you've just got to be on fire. But that means being aware of the eschatological tension. Something we live and struggle with daily. But it also lies ahead of us, does it not? In our eschatological future that I actually am going to die and be raised up physically. So it's that already not yet tension. That's what we live in. This already not yet tension. You could, no one could have ever explained that to me and me understood unless it had happened to me, unless it had happened to you. In which the old person, the old Matthew, yes, he's been crucified, and yet he must still be battled and resisted every single day. Because I'm no longer under the dominion of sin, yet I'm still at war against it. It's crazy. Verse 5, for if we have become planted together to the likeness of his death, so also we shall be of the rising again. Verse 6, this, knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be made useless for our no longer serving of the sin. And there's so many verses that I love. Matthew 8, verse 22. Let the dead bury the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Messiah, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, all, all things have become new. And that's it. Ephesians 4, verse 22. That you put off concerning your former lusts, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts. We've got to put off the old. But that old man, he wants to walk right back in, doesn't he? Walk right back into our lives. Colossians 3.9. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. See, this is all talking about an authentic walk. And an authentic walk always has a tension. It always has a tension between the old man and the new man. That's an authentic walk. There's always going to be a tension between the old man and the new man. One foot in the grave with the first Adam and the other foot in the kingdom with the second Adam. The eschatological tension. It's everywhere. That's the life I live. That's the life you live. 
a life of tension between birth and death, between flesh and spirit, between death and life, between sin and grace, ultimately between the first Adam and the second Adam. What a strange existence that the Creator has for His children. And that is why when we arrive at the resurrection, the angels will inquire about the life that you and I have lived. And we shall rule over the angels because we survived the eschatological tension and were victorious. Because it's not easy. Not if you're engaged in the battle. It is not easy. When it was easy, I was sitting in a pew every Sunday and I was thinking, there's not much persecution. We're everywhere. This is happy clappy. There's Christian coffee shops everywhere. This is great. Wow. Then, when you start to read your scriptures, you go, we're few and far between. We truly are a remnant. There's nobody that believes the way I do. Oh my goodness, they're going to round us up. FEMA's coming. It's the apocalypse. It's all going to burn. And then you balance out and you go, okay, chill. It's not that bad. There is a tension. But it is a struggle. I mean, my fallen nature, it calls me backward. Why? It calls me backward to what's known. And isn't it easier to go into something that's known? But my redeemed nature calls me forward, but that's uncharted territory. So the old man calls you back to something that's known, something that's familiar. That's called a familiar spirit, Matthew. Stay away from those spirits, familiar spirits, or go forward into the uncharted territory that is unknown, right? Depending on how your boiler's stoked that day depends on what road you will take. And if you decide to take that one, you will literally be grieving the Holy Spirit by the end of the day. And we've all done that. We've all done that. That's the real battle. And it pleases the Father that he sees us in that tension. So don't be dismayed when you have a day where you do as long as you are grieving because you know that you should have gone forward to the uncharted territory. But this is, we're talking about an authentic walk here. And that's all the Father wants and that's all we want to see of one another. Not for me to stand up here and say, oh, it was so easy. No, we're in this together. And we have to help one another to get through to the next season. That's why I love the feasts of Yahuwah, because we go from season to season to season to season. And that gives me points of marking points of what to strive for. Because there's spiritual applications. Last Passover... My dogs went through the fence and mauled a lamb. 
There was definitely some sin in the camp in the Nolan house, I'm thinking, that the father wanted to deal with. Dogs around, outside the gate. So I'm thinking all spiritual kind of things. So this year, my dogs are locked up. They've got electric shock collars on, and I am ready. They are locked up right now and have been since the first time. Oh, there's a lamb. Okay, I was out last weekend with Crocs on, not a good idea, this deep in sheep manure in my neighbor's pasture, and she came out. She's like, what's going on? I saw all the sheep were herded together. I said, it's all right. I've got my shepherds out. But look, I've got a remote control. I'm just kind of training them. She's like, okay. So just want to make sure you know that I've got a handle on things this year. Which makes me very nervous that I even said that now. Because you know what happens when you start to boast, right? Oh, my goodness. Verse 7. For he who hath died hath been set free from sin. And if we died with Messiah, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Messiah, having been raised up from the dead, he doth die no more. Death over him hath no more lordship. It has no power because he has been raised up. Verse 10, for in that he died to sin, he died once. He died once, and in that he liveth, he liveth to Elohim. Verse 11, so also you reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin and living to Elohim in Yahushua Messiah, our Kurios, our Yahweh, yod Hey, wah Hey, And we spoke about the Kurios connection to divinity last week, so I won't go into that. But that's very important again. Paul, with his curious connection, what he's communicating about Yahusha and the divinity of the yod Hey wah to Yahusha. Verse 12, let not then sin reign in your mortal body to obey in its desires. Neither present your members instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to Elohim as living out of the dead and your members instruments of righteousness to Elohim. How are we going to present these bodies? That's the ultimate question. Are we going to allow sin to coexist with us? Are we going to allow sin in our homes? Are we going to allow sin in our lives? Because if we do, what it does is sin erects a barrier. It erects a barrier between our resurrected man and the resurrected Messiah. Do you want a barrier? between the new creation that you are and the resurrected Messiah because sin erects a barrier. 
And we're all in this culture now where everyone's talking about erecting walls. And, but really, the wall that we need to make sure is never erected is a wall of sin between the resurrected me and the resurrected Messiah, the resurrected you, the new creation, and the Messiah. Because that's what sin does. It gradually erects those walls. It isolates us. And when we become isolated, we get depressed. And oppressed. And we lose hope. And there's so many believers that are depressed, oppressed, and lose hope. But the reality is, they've erected barriers of sin in their life between their resurrected self and the resurrected Messiah. And you go, why am I depressed? Well, we have to look closely at our lives and see what, if, what behaviors have we erected that are causing that barrier between us. Because I don't want to be isolated from my Messiah. Because if I'm isolated, then I get depressed. And that isolation causes depression. It causes anxiety because it stifles the relationship. And we cannot stifle the relationship. Look at verse 14. For sin over you shall have, not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. There we go. Woo! Take it home. That's a famous verse, isn't it? For you're not under the law, you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Let it not be. And the knee-jerk reaction is when I was at Calvary Chapel... And I would start to talk about keeping the commandments or old, too much Old Testament. Then people would take me aside and say, but Matthew, we're not under law. We're under grace. Oh, okay then. Everything. Oh, okay then. But then the flip side of it, the other interpretation in the Messianic movement is, well, that's how, how can we spin this? Let's look at uponomon a little differently Let's say upon means controlled by, and nomon, let's say that that means legalism. Well, actually, you're not controlled by legalism. So now we can be more legalistic than ever. Make sure everyone's circumcised when they come to Passover, sailor. Who's going to be at the door? Who's going to be checking willies at the door? You think I'm joking? You think, you don't get the emails I get. There will be no willy checkers here in Salem, Oregon. You don't, seriously. Have you not read Exodus chapter 13 or 12? Okay. Have a good Seder. Make sure, do not put me on the invite list. So there's got to be a narrow road between these two diverse interpretations. Because you can't simply chuck the baby out with the bathwater and say, we're not under law, we're under grace. But you can't be doing the other thing either. And you can't just make up controlled by legalism. Because upon nomon, it, I mean... There's no textual basis for that interpretation either. 
is total opinion. So the narrow road is what we have to investigate. Because this isn't a proof text, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, to assert that believers aren't under the law. It's simply not. With under the law interpreted to mean the commandments found in Torah, or what's termed often the law of Moses. So what does under the law, or nomon really mean? Now, considering in the past few paragraphs of what we've already let, read, Paul's instructed us what? Was he, what's he already instructed us? Not to live under sin's dominion, hasn't he? He's just spent the past few verses telling us, don't live under sin's dominion. Be a new creation. Don't live under sin's dominion. Be a new creation. So in light of that, and then in light of what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, everyone practicing sin also practices lawlessness. A, without nomia Torah. So therefore, if you're without the Torah, you're lawless. Sin is lawlessness. So now we have to examine chapter 6, verse 14 very carefully in light of these things because there's serious consequences. So is the traditional antinomian view literally and textually even viable anymore based upon the context of the letter and the context of 1 John 3.14. The answer, if you're honest, textually honest, with a, is a resounding no. It's not even a viable argument. You're no longer under law. You're under grace. You don't have to do the commandments. That's not even an all, a viable argument. In light of the context of the chapter and the context of 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, any scholar worth his salt, once you present that evidence, is going to have to back down and say, okay, we have got to see what the problem is here, because the problem is obviously with our understanding if we're coming to that false conclusion. So let's dig a little deeper and find out what the text really says. We're forced to do more, in all honesty, than a cursory and unscholarly read of chapter 6, verse 14, if we want to find this true balance between Law and grace. And there's two points. Number one, number one, the sin master, listen, the sin master and the Torah, they are not one and the same. The sin master and the Torah are not one and the same. Romans 7 7 makes that very clear. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. So the sin master and the Torah, in conclusion, are not one and the same. Thank you. Check that box. Let's move on to the second point. The second point, the Torah isn't the agent of sin. The sin master is. I'm no 
not that smart, but I would have loved to have been this smart when I was at Calvary Chapel. I would have loved to. I just wasn't thinking clearly back then. Now I think very clearly. It's not that I'm smart. It's just that I just think everybody's out to try and pull the wool over my eyes. So I don't believe a word any, anyone says to me. Okay, I'll check on that. Mm-hmm. Which can also get me in trouble when I'm pulled over by a policeman. I get my, cu- my, my phone out and start... Am I being detained? <laughs> Didn't work out too well. Because, see, people send me too many of those um, sovereign citizen videos, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to try that out. <sighs> oh. I actually reached out to the local um, community enforcement officer a couple of weeks ago. I asked them to come down to my school and talk to my students because there'd been a lot of crime. They never did get back to me. (laughs) We're not going in there. Let's look at the three traditional views of what under the law or hupo nomon in the Greek mean. The three traditional views of Romans chapter 6, verse 14. And then I'll give you a fourth, okay? The three traditional views. Number one, the traditional Christian view is that the Torah or the law of Moses to be obeyed by people. That's what it means. The Torah, the law of Moses, you're not supposed to be obeying that if you're in Christ Jesus. That's the first traditional view. The second view, it's a more modern view since the 1970s, and it's called the New Perspective of Paul. And the New Perspective of Paul view is the Torah's condemnation or penalties pronounced upon lawbreakers. That's what's in view. So it's a little bit more liberal, isn't it? That's the new perspective of Paul in theological circles from about the 1970s. It's talking about the Torah's condemnation or penalties pronounced upon believers. That's what Romans 6.14 is talking about. Now, the messianic view, number three, is talking about legalism, the oral law, or an inappropriate abuse of Torah. That's what it's talking about of Romans 6.14. I believe the fourth option is that you are Textually, we can show this. This is not speculation like the messianic view. It's not lawless like the traditional Christian view. And it's not a far stretch like the new perspective of Paul, but it's rooted in Bible chapter and verse, which is what I like. It's safe. You are not under the book of the law, but you are under Grace connected to the covenants of promise 
given to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, solid textual witness. You are not under the book of the law. Ephesians 2.12, you are under grace, which are the covenants of promise. Grace inception point is Noah, thus benefited to Abraham. How will I know that I shall get this? Grace. Solid to me. I can see this now clearly. Because as I've got older and more mature, I become more narrow-minded when it comes to the Scripture being what rules my life. I'm not going to go out and read a bunch of rabbinical commentary like I did when I was in the Messianic movement. I'm not going to go out and read a bunch of Calvinistic and Lutheran tradition either. I become more narrow-minded in the meaning that... I'm just going to stick with the Bible because that is what I trust and is a trustworthy source. Yes, I understand there's translation problems, but that's all part of the fun of investigation. But I don't need to go out into all of these other cursory environments. I'm very narrow-minded. Oh, you can't always see, admitted he's narrow-minded. We should be when it comes to the Scripture. Deal with the text and you'll be safe. And if you can find support for what you're saying within the Bible, because the Bible is the dictionary for the Bible. And therefore, I can go, well, hang on a minute. I'm not under the book of the law. I'm under grace, which are the covenants of promise given to Abraham. It's Torah, but it's the Torah of Abraham. That's grace. That's favor. That's rats on. Therefore, I have support. You see, the ones under the law, under the book of the law, they haven't realized Yahushua's inauguration of the new covenant. They're still under the schoolmaster or they're still under this idea of rejecting the whole of the Torah and being lawless. So they're either following a book of the law, schoolmaster, or they reject the whole thing, throw the baby out with the bathwater, and it's total lawlessness. But the covenant framework is Hebrews 8, chapter 7, that Yahushua has brought forth the covenant instituted as Torah based upon better things. This is amazing. So the ones truly under grace are a very small remnant. Because those of us that are truly, truly under grace, we're not lawless. But we're not into rabbinic doctrine or dogma or Torah, Torah, Torah. If you're truly under grace, you've realized Yahushua inaugurated the new covenant given as Torah, Hebrews 8, 7 based upon better promises that have been released. We have now been released from the schoolmaster, the book of the law, and we have been established into the Torah through the covenants given to Abraham. It's the covenants of promise. That is grace. You see, we can't follow anymore. We don't have the excuses that our forefathers did. 
We've got way too much information and way too much technology at the tips of our fingers that we don't have the excuses that Grandma Betty had. We don't have the excuses that Martin Luther had and he changed the world. And he only had a few dozen manuscripts. I've got more access than he does through my laptop and so do you. I can read the Dead Sea Scrolls as soon as I have internet connection. In fact, I don't even need it because I think I downloaded it. I can read Septuagint, Greek, various Hebrew. I mean, I can cross-reference everything all at the touch of a button. Concordances. We've got more access than Martin Luther, and he brought forth the Reformation. So we don't have the excuses that our forefathers had. And excuses are simply in the Hebrew, fig leaves. You cover yourselves with excuses. Hebrew, fig leaves. You see, I don't think that we have the excuse to follow a system that doesn't even believe in the Ten Commandments. Today, our modern 21st century Christianity that is perpetrated from many of the pulpits, doesn't even hold to the Ten Commandments. It's the six commandments and the four suggestions. Should you and I be following an institutional system that doesn't even believe in the Ten Commandments? You shouldn't. That doesn't even know the Ten Commandments. They can tell you the ten ingredients of the Big Mac, but they can't tell you what the Ten Commandments are because they believe in the Six Commandments and the Four Suggestions. And it's simply outrageous. Something, I have to tell you, that would have given conservative scholars a hundred years ago would turn in their grave. Conservative Christian scholars of yesteryear would turn in their grave at what is perpetrated as Christianity today. They would turn in their grave, utterly shocked that you're masquerading this as Christianity when you don't even believe in the Ten Commandments. You believe there's six commandments and four suggestions. They would turn in their grave. It's outrageous. But you see, the waters have got awfully lukewarm, haven't they? Awfully lukewarm. You see, 21st century American Christianity, it has become mindless and unresponsive to four out of four of the vertical commandments between man and Yahuwah. 21st century Christianity has become mindless and unresponsive when it comes to four out of four of the vertical commandments between man and Yahuwah. And what I'm saying right now is going to be so offensive to somebody. And all I'm asking you, instead of shooting the messenger, test what I am saying. Go back into your Sunday church and ask your pastor, your youth pastor, can you tell me what the Ten Commandments are? They will not be able to label them off to you one by one. 
Ask people in the pews. Ask them the difference between the vertical and the horizontal commandments. They have no concept. This is foundational to our faith. We cannot live this nonchalant and have a tolerant approach to the commandments. You see, look at the first four commandments. These are vertical commandments. I am Yahuwah. Who? It's not the Lord. I am Yahuwah. The Lord, look it up in your Webster's Dictionary, is another name for Baal, the master, the Lord of the flies, Satan. Not the name of of the creator. It doesn't say, I am the Lord your God, because the gods that we serve in the nations are the gods of money. And people get all bent out of shape. Well, they took took God off the new dollar coin. Well, so what? Do you really think they were talking about the God of the Bible? They were talking about the God of mammon. That's why it's on the mammon. It's not for you and me. Let him have it. Let's go about our father's business. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. You know, not the Elohim that you've made up in the nations, but if you're going to believe in the Creator, He is called Yahweh, and He delivered a people out of Egypt. That's the, Do you follow that God? Because that God is a lot different than what's being taught. He delivered a people called Israel out of Egypt, and He did it by His great mighty outstretched arm and then he brought them to the mountain and he gave them the commandments to sanctify them because they had been ignited by salvation by the blood of the lamb and now he was bringing them to the mountain the boiler point of sanctification nothing new here do you serve that god number two Do not make any graven images or idols. Yes, you don't have the right to bring a tree into the middle of the congregation around Christmas time and erect it. That is a graven image and an idol brought into the house of the Father. And we've got problems with architecture all over the country. Graven images, edifices to Nimrod, and um, all kinds of things everywhere. People go on vacation and they pick up a graven image and bring it back into their house. I have no problem with that. Well, we should have a problem with that. That's the second commandment. Hollywood, that's a bunch of idolatry and graven images down there. We should have problems bringing that into our home. Be careful when you put on the Academy Awards and you invite that idolatry into your house. Okay? We, we have to, if we're going to keep the commandments... Number three, don't hide his name and bring it to vain emptiness and call him the name of a British landlord. Lord, it's not his name. It's a title. Baal, Satan, Bel, that's not his name. His name causes division, makes people feel very uncomfortable. And his name, however you want to pronounce it, is yod Hey wah Yahuwah. Right? That's the name. And his son's name, he came in his father's name, Yahushua. 
Yahweh is our salvation. Now, let's be honest. The letter J was invented in 1532. So we have a slight problem there, don't we? So we have to investigate these things with all honesty. And if you're not being honest, then no wonder you can't keep the three and let alone the fourth commandment, which is what? How about we keep Sabbath? Because if we can't even keep Ten Commandments, then what kind of God and what kind of faith are you following? You're into idolatry. You've created a God that you like to serve when it suits you. And it makes you feel religious and it makes you feel holy. But it is not the Yahuwah, our Elohim, who delivered us out of Egypt and slavery. Let's be honest. I mean, really? That's why we are few and far between. Because what is propagated as Christianity today only keeps six horizontal commandments. Because it's all between me and my fellow man. Because you know what? The four vertical, well, that's a private deal. That's between, you know, me and my own God. Exactly. You and your own God. And this is hard for people to hear. But I challenge you, take up the challenge. Go and ask people what the Ten Commandments are. Go and investigate if they know that it's Yahweh who delivered a people out of Egypt. He delivered them to sanctification. It was the Passover Seder. It was Passover that was the delivery mechanism. It wasn't the bare-breasted fertility goddess. These are things that we should rise up to the challenge. We shouldn't bring graven images and idols into our house, whether it be through television or through bringing in little objects and things into our life. That commandment still stands. And let's not hide his name and pretend his name's the Lord when it's simply not. You don't have the excuse of removing it from your Bibles close to 7,000 times and replacing it with the name of a British landlord. Instead, we've got Satan that has been nicely kept for every generation across every translation, and everybody knows who Hasatan is. How come his name is still meant? And mentioned, but we hide the name and bring the name of the Creator into vain emptiness. And you can't say that we don't keep the Sabbath because this is just the basics of a faith that was delivered to a people that were delivered from slavery. And Paul is saying in Romans 6 if you've really been delivered from slavery, which is sin, then you need to serve the one true Elohim that is in the business of delivering people from sin and slavery. Super powerful. But any other God is going to leave you lukewarm in the nations, bankrupt and destitute with graven images, idolatry and lawlessness all around. And that's not the narrow road that leads to life. So as we go forward here, you can see that we can't follow the doctrines of an establishment that can't even keep the simple instruction straight. We simply can't. And that's how I end up here. And that's how many of you have ended up here. Because you see it and you go, this is hypocrisy. You're talking out of one side of your mouth saying that you love God. But on the other side of your mouth, you can't even keep the Ten Commandments? So how, how are we going to get sanctified if we're preaching that? 
There's no sanctification there. It's a game. It's a joke. And the unbeliever sees it. They see it. They see the hypocrisy of it. It's a bad witness. Christianity today, I'm afraid to say, it lives in a nominal state of obedience to the Creator where not even the ethical and moral precepts of Torah are taught and allowed to guide their discipleship. Clearly, when we look at the text, we're informed by Paul that we are not subject to the book of the law's condemnation and that being under grace means being brought into the book of the covenant, the Torah by Yahushua, because we realize the promises given to Abraham. Paul doesn't at all consider the Torah as a whole abolished. He doesn't consider the Torah as a whole irrelevant. Let it never be. He recognizes that there's been a change of law. Hebrews 7.12 For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Brought about, we know how, by Yahushua's priesthood and the inauguration of the book of the covenant. Now, because we're redeemed from the curses that are contained in the book of the law, there is a shift in law that has happened. And that's the crux. Do you understand the shift in law? Those are the questions that need to be asked. You see, the book of the law, it condemned you. It condemned me because of the infidelity toward Yahweh. But we're no longer subject to its pronouncement of death upon all who transgress it. Likewise, we're no longer subject to its conditional priesthood either. You see, Paul's statements here in Romans chapter 6 about the law, they cannot be interpreted as blanket statements about the Torah when a dichotomy is what is in view here. It's the dichotomy that's in view here. We've just not had the dichotomy ever revealed to us until these last days. And now that we have, we have a responsibility to it. And what does the New Testament say about the dichotomy being blanketed or veiled to people? 2 Corinthians 3.14 Many still have the same veil untaken away in their reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Messiah. You see, Messiah removes the veil, and the veil is the book of the law. He doesn't remove the Torah so that you can be lawless. Heavens forbid. He removes the book of the law so that you can come into covenant Torah. He gets rid of the condemnation and brings you into grace, the promises given to Abraham, where you'll actually find that the Ten Commandments should control your every single moment of life. 
Because you'll wake up in the morning and you'll go, I serve Yahweh, my Elohim, who delivered me out of slavery from Egypt. I am not going to bring any graven images or idols into my house, into my thoughts, into my heart today. And I am going to go out. And when people say, what is the hope, Matthew, that is within you? Well, let me tell you about Yahweh. I want you to know his great name. And you know what? On Sabbath, we rest. Come round the fellowship. Let's congregate together. This is about having a vertical relationship with mankind because it's the Ten Commandments. It's not the Six Commandments and the Four Suggestions. It's not that hard, but it's so hard for people to hear this because it's true. Because we have come far unshackled, far unshackled, but now found ourselves tied up and ensnared with the doctrines and denominations of men. It's a trouble. It's a trouble. So we can see now as we look at the authority has been shifted from the book of the law to the book of the covenant. The authority of the book of the law has been superseded by the authority of the book of the covenant. Both the Torah, but the lesser serves the greater, not vice versa. Paul's statements about the law can't be interpreted as a blanket statement about the Torah when the dichotomy is truly in view here. That's what we're talking about. Look at the letter to the Romans differently because this letter to the Romans is a textual witness to Torah's validity but we have to understand the dichotomy that's in view Romans 3 verse 31 do we then make void the Torah through faith Yahweh forbid we establish the Torah right Romans 7.12, wherefore the Torah is holy and the commandment is holy. It's just and it's jolly good. Romans 7.14, for we know that the Torah is truly spiritual. Romans 7.22, for I delight in the Torah of Elohim after the inward man. Romans 7.25, I thank Elohim through Yahushua Messiah, our Yahuwah. So then with the mind, I myself serve the Torah of Elohim, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Romans 8.4, that the righteousness of the Torah might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against Elohim, for it is not subject to the Torah of Elohim. Neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh, they simply cannot please Elohim. If you're carnal and in the flesh, you won't want anything to do with the commandments commonly called the law of Yahweh, and you won't understand the dichotomy. So, this is a mature message, and it's mature people that are ready for the meat that can digest it. But other people, it just makes them feel sick and they just want to vomit it up. And they'll be like a dog that returns to their 
and they'll resurrect the dead man and then never live a sanctified life because you can't live a sanctified life if you can't even keep ten commandments you're not even interested in the vertical commandments between you and the creator don't know his name you got your houses full of idols you don't even understand that you were delivered from slavery and sin by the great Yahweh and you're always spinning and running you never rest don't understand what Sabbath means because Sabbath was given for man so that we could rest as a gift you see all in all this law verse Romans 6.14, in context, concerns people being freed from the Torah's book of the law's condemnation. Torah and grace, they were never supposed to be taught as being at odds with one another. Where did we get that from? That's such a shame that we've had to try and undo all of that. Because Torah and grace... The Bible doesn't teach that they were ever at odds with one another. The fact that I've had to spend so much time trying to undo that debacle is really sad. Because the Bible doesn't teach that Torah and grace were ever at odds with one another. The letter of Romans is communicating the means by which the sinner but the means, excuse me, by which the believer is no longer a slave to sin, but they are alive to Yahweh. Hupo nomos, under law, meaning the condemnation that the book of the law has upon sinners. Specifically, in contrast to Romans 8.1, where we find, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yahushua. If you're in Messiah Yahushua, you're no longer under the condemnation of the book of the law. It's the removal of condemnation. Not the removal of Torah. Heavens forbid. There's harmony between grace and Torah. Harmony. You see, this is because people have had this failure to understand, a failure to realize that as we go through the scriptures, there has been a failure to accomplish the book of the law's demands. Man could never accomplish what the book of the law demanded from him. Never. Because really, that book of the law, what did it do? It awakened inside mankind an awareness. And that awareness stoked rebellion, didn't it? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Only in the book of the covenant, ratified by Yahushua, is there freedom from the power from sin made available to us. You see, those who believe that under grace and under law, as representing two different ages, the age of the law and now we're in the age of grace, miss the fact that Abraham accepted the promise and was justified According to grace, while still being observant of the book of the covenant, which is Torah. My 10-year-old understands this. It's kind of embarrassing, really, when we, you know, isn't it a little bit? I'm kind of embarrassed for myself 20 years ago. 
I've got to admit, I am. But nobody ever taught me and nobody ever taught you. And they didn't teach us to trust the text. Because we had to listen to, well, you know, Billy, if Billy Graham's doing it, then, you know, well, what about, well, if Martin Luke? Forget these people. What does the Bible say? Trust in the word of Yahweh. Show me the verse where it says that we should do that, and I'll do it. Let's just get simple. Now, I'm not that smart, but I've simply narrow-minded when it comes to the Scripture. This is what I believe, and I have a super confidence in the Bible, and I've read it enough that if people say, oh, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that, that's totally false, you should be doing this, I go, okay, what, what chapter is that in, and what verse? Now, let's investigate it. Okay, all right. And then they'll take you to that. And they get so locked into that chapter and verse that that's what it means. You'll never change their mind. Don't even engage on that chapter and verse. Just take them to the other one and the other one and the other one that shows the context of what they're reading is totally skewed. Because you'll never unlock somebody from their their favorite verse, right? Matthew 5.17. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But Elohim be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Romans 6, 18. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness, unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things it is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to Yahuwah, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death and the gift of Elohim is life eternal in Messiah Yahushua. And he ends on such a strong note. Our Kurios, our Yahweh. In summation, the book of the law demanded obedience. But grace, charis, chesed, rachamin, ratzon, whatever you want to call it, grace supplies the will and the power to obey. It's only grace that supplies the will and the power to obey. But to obey what? A bunch of pagan gods? No. To obey the commandments of Yahweh. In light of 1 John 3, 4, we know that we're not going to be lawless. It's grace that supplies the will and the power to obey. 
And because of that, it breaks the mastery of sin as imposed law could never break that mastery of sin, could it? The book of the law could never break the mastery that sin had in people's lives. Because of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, we, you and I, we can obey Yahweh's covenant precepts, his Torah. But we have to realize that the Spirit is only present where grace resides. The Spirit is only present where grace resides. And grace is what empowers me to keep the commandments of Yahweh. So in reality... The church is not under Yahweh's grace. Because if the church was under Yahweh's grace, they would be empowered to keep the commandments of Yahweh. You see, they don't even understand the difference between grace and mercy. The church is not under Yahweh's grace. They are under Yahweh's mercy. The withholding of just judgment deserved. Because if we were under Yahweh's grace, we would be empowered to keep the commandments. But you deserve judgment because you rebel against the commandments. The only reason that you haven't got the judgment is because you're under his mercy. The withholding of judgment just deserved. So if you skew the meaning of grace and mercy, you can get away with murder. And that is religion today. People getting away with bloody murder saying that they're following God. And if you get enough of the little goats in the same congregation all clapping to the same beat, you cannot even know the Ten Commandments and think you're all going to heaven. That's how far we've come. And Christian traditionalists of yesteryear would turn in their grave if they saw how lukewarm the church has become. Lukewarm. Lukewarm. And Paul is calling us out of that. Hold a buckle into righteousness and holiness because we have the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Because we realize that the Spirit is only present in us where that grace resides. And it is only in the book of the covenant. In Genesis, behold now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight. And thou hast magnified the mercy That's from Genesis. There's your grace. When Yahushua becomes the master of a person's life, this brings forth that status change to Noah and Abraham. That's the status change we want. We want the status change from the dead man, Adam, to Noah and Abraham, where grace resides in tandem, listen, 
Grace resides in tandem with covenant Torah. That's the grace of Abraham and Noah. Believers who are in the book of the covenant and redeemed by Yahusha are to obey covenant Torah, but they're not subject anymore to the book of the law's punishment that was pronounced upon sinners. That is Paul's point in Romans chapter 6. It's a lot to think about. But it's a very, very serious chapter to admonish us to move on. Let the dead man rot in his grave and now sanctify and be that new creation. But you're no longer under the condemnation of the book of the law. You are now empowered by grace to keep the book of the covenant, Torah, commandments. But let's start off by even acknowledging that Yahweh is the Elohim that delivered us out of slavery, out of Egypt. And that he says that we're to live a sanctified life. There's no place for graven images and idols in our life. Proclaim his name, Yahweh, to the nations and come and celebrate Shabbat. By doing that, you're starting on the road to righteousness and stoking the boilers of sanctification in your life. Don't be deluded by the lukewarm theologians around because conservative Christians that are in their graves would turn in their graves if they could see what is being served up for Sunday sermons today. It's truly, truly the frog in the water with the temperature gradually being boiled and you don't realize how hot it's getting but it's time for us to get into the righteousness in romans chapter six questions comments thoughts dawn yeah oh a couple of hands yes let's pass the microphone around so our internet audience can can um, be a part of the conversation and maybe even somebody online has some questions too Are you sure? Okay. Being new in this more than a movement, the thing that has helped me so far the most is seeing the difference between the book of the law and the book of the covenant. Having been in the church, a leader in the church for many years, and now seeing the difference I thought that the Ten Commandments were a part of the schoolmaster. Therefore, I felt like that was a good suggestion. And in the spirit of Christianity, we would do that. As a favor. But are you saying that the Ten Commandments are in both the Book of the Law and in the Book of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments are the covenant. They are part of the covenant, the book of the covenant, Exodus chapter 20. And later in the repetition of the law, Deuteronomy, of course, you see the Ten Commandments. But yes, that is, that is the marriage. That's, but that's the marriage ketubah, meaning the, the contract, the marriage contract. But it's like unto this. If a man and a wife and a woman get married today and you write out your vows... That is the Ten Commandments. But that doesn't mean, well, hang on a minute. 
No, no, that, that, that's not in my vows. I'm not doing that. You would never do that. The vows are what you've poured your heart into to write that encapsulate your very love for your bride. But you're never going to throw it back in your bride's face. Hey, my vow said I'd only do this, so I'm not doing that. Right? But, but if the Ten Commandments are a part of the book of the law, that was the question. That was the confusion. No, the Ten Commandments are the book of the covenant. But, aren't but they later, also? but later in the repetition of what went beforehand, they are recorded down. But they are of the covenant. There's much in the book of the law that then tells you what is in the book of the covenant because what it is is Yahweh then he takes the book of the covenant which they broke and then he brings forth more restrictions schoolmaster instructions on top of that then Yahusha once you get converted inside releases the schoolmaster restrictions because you're now going to do it because it's written on your heart no longer on tablets of stone so the book of the covenant, blood ratified and upon the heart of the children of Israel. But it wasn't. They broke it. So then the book of the law is the added schoolmaster. There's a lot of dovetailing okay. Okay. with a whole bunch more of tutoring, restriction, because it needs to be drilled into them because they are untrustworthy and unfaithful until the Spirit can come through the blood ratification of Yahusha and take that covenant and put it in your heart so that you'll know it and do it. And then the restrictive schoolmaster and the condemnation of the book of the law have left you. It's amazing. It's amazing. And this is not a movement. This is truly... Bringing forth the righteous remnant priesthood in these last days. So if we are going to reach the genuinely hungry, honest church people, the technicality that I'm speaking of is a big one. It's huge. It's huge, yeah. We have to understand the dichotomy between the book of the law and the book of the covenant, but also understand the distinction between a covenant that is blood ratified and a covenant that is broken. And then a covenant that then is re-ratified, a new covenant, not a renewed, but a new covenant by Yahusha, blood ratified again. And in the midst of the book of the covenant, blood ratified, and the new covenant of Yahusha, blood ratified, there is a broken covenant and an imposed law until the time of reformation when the Messiah would come. And that is what we have to navigate as believers, but we have the answers if we'd only have the heart, the eyes, and the ears. Oh, wonderful. We did a teaching apparently called Shifting Out of Neutral, and maybe it's online. If not, you can contact us at info at tribes.com And that showed where the Ten Commandments were identified throughout the Scriptures even before the Ten Commandments. Thank you. Yes. So question about the name. We know that the name over 7,000 times... Um, in the Hebrew, has now in the English been tr 
translated Lord. So we know that. My question is, why do you think that the New Testament writers, with the exception of Matthew, did not bring in that Hebrew name in the midst of their Greek audience and use that Hebrew name in the Greek manuscripts? And I know they were letters, so I know that they weren't probably even thinking in the same way that I am thinking about their letters, perhaps. But why do you think they didn't bring that Hebrew yud Hey, wahe into their Greek writings? Well, I think as we have done, and we find it even today in our modern translations, there's this knee-jerk reaction to want to cater and pander to the religion of Judaism or the Pharisees. Back in the day there, they were pandering to the Pharisees. And they had hidden the name. And we even see this problem with Peter. It's spoken about, you know, the issue that, um, that Paul has with Peter to the Galatians. Peter tells us, even in Acts chapter 10, that he was pandering to Pharisaic tradition, where he wouldn't even go, it's unlawful for me to even go and eat with those of the nations. It says that in Acts chapter 10. It's not, un, it's not against the Torah. It's unlawful according to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Peter, stop pandering to the Jews. So I think what was happening in the first century, they were pandering to the Jewish tradition, which was hiding the name. And even today in the Messianic movement, we'll have people calling him, saying, Hashem. Or they'll go G-D instead of, I mean, it's ridiculous. Or they'll go Adonai. How many times do you hear people do, Yavarechacha Adonai, Ve'yish Mereka? Well, if you're going to keep the commandments, keep the commandments. That's not what it says. It's not Yavarechacha Adonai. That's not the ironic blessing. Tradition. So I think tradition, long-winded answer to a short question, tradition. I think they were pandering to Jewish tradition, and that is what's come across even in the translations. And I think Peter, especially, we can see that he pandered to Jewish tradition, and that came up. And I wouldn't be surprised if the gospel writers struggled with that too, just as people struggle with it today. I think that is the fear of man, and that is the struggle that all believers have. And when I've communicated this message and many other messages to other people, pastors, whether they've been Orthodox Christian or in the Messianic movement, I can't tell you how many people privately have said, Matthew, I agree with what you're saying, but publicly I cannot say that. I cannot take that stance. My ministry's direction is here. What you're saying, and, and if I were you, I wouldn't take that stance because I think it's going to affect you negatively in the long run. You'll be able to reach more people if you don't teach that. I can't tell you how many times privately that has been said to me by various individuals in the Messianic movement, prominent teachers and Christians. Prominent. But, and I always kind of go back on my heels. And I'm like, I'm astounded. Because... I just don't think that way. So, again, it's the fear of man. People are afraid. I think you've already answered my question. 
But how do you reconcile when Yahweh said, when Yahushua said, the two commandment, the greatest commandment is love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and and with all of your soul, and the second is love your neighbors. As he, he's, yeah, he is directing us back to the marriage ketubah of the covenant. He's directing us back to the most important is the four vertical commandments, and second unto that is the six horizontal commandments, because in your dealings with the Creator and mankind is the very essence of the covenant, is it not? But that doesn't limit it to that. That's the beginning point. That's not the zenith. That's the very beginning of the journey. Any other questions, comments? Yes. Well, I got a, I got a comment, brother. Uh, you're being very gracious about uh, some of these congregations that I have seen, and you probably have too. They're not the ten suggest. They're not the ten commandments or the six commandments. Four. I've actually seen them all. Ten suggestions. And I brought it up to pastors, and I've actually got in conflict with pastors because of that. And, and I've challenged deacons, and I've challenged the pastors, and not once they come to tell me that they're following the way they did before. They always say, we're not following the same way today because back then it was different, but now it's a, it's a different time. And I'm saying, well, y'all's word is forever. It's living and active. It's supposed to be for all nations and for all time. So they take the first part, I am Yahweh, and from that point on, that's what they, they don't even say that. They're saying... To actually the, get rid of the first commandment, yeah, right. take the second commandment, split it into two, two, and actually do away with the first commandment. Look at it. Look at the difference in the commandments between um, the way it's interpreted and written out in the Bible and even Christianity today. They actually get rid of the first commandment, take the second commandment and make two commandments out of it, and that's how they have ten. Go look. That's outrageous. The first commandment is in the indicative voice. It's indicating something. Indicating, if you can't even believe that it's Yahweh who delivered a people out of slavery, out of Egypt, if you don't follow that, Elohim, then you're not going to be motivated to do any of the next nine commandments because you don't even recognize the right God. So if you do away with the first commandment, split the second commandments in two, you've got yourself a God of your own making. And welcome to religion today. It's outrageous. And I remember sitting back in the church and them saying, this is what they, this is what they said. They said, they, these are principles. And I remember, I actually didn't say it, but my wife said it. She elbowed me right in the ribs and it's like, And then do you know what I did? Yes. And then I got all riled up. And then she most probably regretted that she said it because it fired me up. And that was it. Where? Where does it say? Can you show me the verse? I want to know the verse that says the commandments have now been changed to principles. If you can show me that verse, I'm on board. And again, that doesn't exist. And that's the way I started to think, which then led me here goodness questions uh yeah uh, on uh, on isaiah i was re- spent a lot of time in isaiah and jeremiah this week and just repeating it over and over and again and, and there's sometimes that it's just actually um and one of the verses that that was brought up is exactly that 
um, that talks about those, and it's in the LXX in Brenton's, but it's not in the Masoretic text. Uh, chapter 8, I think it's verse 16, it says, Then shall those who seal themselves that they may not learn the law be made manifest. And it's talking about those that actually make this decision. It's like a searing in the brain of, I'm not going to learn this. I'm going to seal myself into this because that's been done away with. Mm. And therefore, you're, you're really ramming your head up against the windshield uh, when you're dealing with it. I want to make a comment on what um, uh, Stephanie had said about taking the name out. Now, um, now on one part of Judaism, they did that. But on the other hand, the religion or the church or Christianity, they come in and took out the name G uh, Jesus and changed it over to Jesus when it is Yahusha. And I believe personally that there is a difference between the two because Christianity has come in and hijacked the scriptures. They took out the first commandment. I am Yahweh, the Lord thy God that has brought you out. They took that out and put the other one in as I am the Lord thy God. You shall not, you shouldn't, right. And, and so religion has hijacked scriptures. I remember at Calvary Chapel, we had a Muslim evangelist um, come in. That's a, an oxymoron there, isn't it, in itself? But a, supposedly a converted Muslim, and he had an, um, an Arabic New Testament translation that was going to be um, sent out, and wherever it said G, capital G-O-D, was replaced with Allah. And that was acceptable. And I'm like, hang on a minute. Allah is one of the daily deities that was taken out of the Kabbalah by Muhammad. This is an Elohim of the nations. And we're comparing him and saying that's synonymous with the one true living creator. This is none other than taking the mark of the beast. The bismillah. And this is the setup. And as you see the migration in Europe, and you see what's happening now across America, you can see the setup for people taking the mark of the beast is not understanding the first commandment. Who is the God that you serve? Because I don't serve the God on the back of the dollar bill. And I couldn't care less if that God is on the dollar coin or not. Because that's your God. That is not my Elohim. I'm not going to engage in that kind of battle and debate. That's not important to me. Because that isn't... I don't believe that the founders of America were serving the one true creator, Yahweh, were they into Luciferic Masonism? And were they, were they doing all of the Masonic work, which was a mixture of the worship of the one true God with the worship of Satan? Yes. Were they involved in the occult and masonry, which is the occult? Yes. Is Washington, D.C. designed upon the Luciferic sphere? 
so that they can get empowered by the Elohim of the nations? Yes, it's a conjuring mechanism that has been architecturally designed for that very purpose. So, these are things that we must consider. That's another can of worms, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> I've got something on this chapter six of Romans. It's been an awesome chapter. You look at it. We try to complicate that chapter so much that forget we forget just how simple it really is. Remember what Revelation says. Remember your first love. And this is what it's all about, dying to the old man, going into that watery grave, remembering what you felt when you come up out of that grave. I am a new creature in my Abba, but yet I had to come back into a sinful world. But now I'm empowered with the righteousness of Yahushua that I can battle that problems that I had before. I'm not the same person. Thank Abba for that. And we can all see it, but we try to complicate it so much well, we don't see the trees because the forest gets in the way. Mm -hmm. So it is a simple, simple when we see it through the eyes of Paul. And it's truly amazing for me because I did used to teach the Romans road back in the church so many times. And I was discipled. I used to meet every week with my pastor at like 6.30 in the morning. And I remember going through Romans and Romans and Romans. And I tell you what, it was sanctifying for me back then. But now to teach it now in light of this 20 years later has truly been um, comforting and enlightening to me. And just amazing to see what the process of sanctification has done in my own life. Even as I teach it to actually see that bearing witness in me is powerful. It's powerful that the Word is alive. And that the safety is in the scripture and the scripture alone. And when we just look to Yahuwah and we look to his word, there truly is a, just a comfort and a safety. And I am so thankful from being delivered from that fear of man. Where at one point in my life, I thought that I should go to seminary. I thought, well, well that's how I'll learn. Thank goodness I didn't. But I didn't quite understand back then. I knew that I needed more, but I didn't know how to get it because I didn't have the confidence that I have in the Word. But now my confidence is in the Word alone. And when we have that, we are unshackled from the doctrines of men because we can go and see for it ourselves and we should be able to have this healthy conversation of investigation. Amen? Amen. We do have the Passover. April 2nd at 4 o'clock here in Salem, Oregon. Um, tickets are available online because it's at the Grand Hotel and you can stay there with reservations as well. And also we have Passover in Texas as well on um, Sunday, April the 2nd as well. Info at TorahToTheTribes.com. Shabbat Shalom and blessings. We have an Oneg.